You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli, and the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. At that time, Eli, whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he could not see, was lying down in his own place. The lamp of God had not yet gone out, and Samuel was lying down in the temple of Yahweh, where the ark of God was. Then Yahweh called Samuel, and he said, Here I am, and ran to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call, lie down again. So he went and lay down. And Yahweh called again, Samuel. And Samuel arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. But he said, I did not call my son, lie down again. Now Samuel did not yet know Yahweh, and the word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him. And Yahweh called Samuel again the third time, and he arose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, for you called me. Then Eli perceived that Yahweh was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said to Samuel, Go, lie down, and if he calls you, you shall say, Speak, Yahweh, for your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. And Yahweh came and stood, calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, Speak, for your servant hears. Then Yahweh said to Samuel, Behold, I am about to do a thing in Israel, at which the two ears of everyone who hears it will tingle. On that day I will fulfill against Eli all that I have spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. And I declare to him that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew, because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Therefore I swear to the house of Eli that the iniquity of Eli's house shall not be atoned for by sacrifice or offering forever. Samuel lay down until morning. Then he opened the doors of the house of Yahweh. And Samuel was afraid to tell the vision to Eli. But Eli called Samuel and said, Samuel, my son. And he said, Here I am. And Eli said, What was it that he told you? Do not hide it from me. May God do so to you and more if you hide anything from me of all that he told you. So Samuel told him everything and hid nothing from him. And he said, It is Yahweh. Let him do what seems good to him. And Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him. And let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of Yahweh. And Yahweh appeared again at Shiloh, for Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. Welcome, amigo, to the land without end. The desert and death are the closest of friends. We sing of his courage in the magnificent song. We pay close attention, he won't be here long. 
Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 721 of this podcast. Today is Monday, September 25th, 2023, and that was 1 Samuel chapter 3. Yahweh calls Samuel as a boy. The boy Samuel is ministering to Yahweh, and he doesn't know Yahweh. He doesn't know what his voice sounds like. He doesn't know that Yahweh is calling to him. The word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him, it says in verse 7. Samuel did not yet know Yahweh. But it's almost comical, but it's definitely odd that you have the boy laying down and he thinks that Eli is calling for him. And so he goes to him and he goes to him three times. Emphasis by repetition. And at a certain point, Eli understands, you know what? This is probably God calling Samuel. And what's curious about that is that that thought even occurs to Eli. And the instruction that he gives is very helpful instruction. And even his response when Samuel, the next morning, tells him what it is that Yahweh told to Samuel and doesn't leave anything out. Eli's response is, tell me everything or all of what God said he would do, he will do to you too, which is perhaps a bluff. Maybe that's a curse that Eli has the ability to issue. Either way, it probably terrifies this boy if he understood what it is that Yahweh told him. And clearly, Yahweh is able to make Samuel understand. But then God tells Samuel, this boy, what God is going to do to Eli and to his sons and to all of his descendants forever. And now here's Samuel, this boy, telling Eli, telling a much older man who he has basically been raised by when he was very young, after he was weaned by his mother, he was given over to the service of the temple at Shiloh. This guy is basically the closest thing Samuel knows to a father, really truly. And here he's going to be the one to tell Eli what is going to happen to Eli. And Eli, at the end of it, once it's all been told, says, it is Yahweh. And how does Eli know that? Eli knows that it's Yahweh because a man of God came to Eli in the previous chapter and told him a bit more. And so this is confirmation, a reminder. God hasn't forgotten And yes, in fact, that word from the man of God was from God. If you were wondering, if you were doubting, here's confirmation of that, because Samuel wouldn't have any idea that this had been said, probably. And so now, at the end of it, Eli is assured that this is going to come to pass, this bad thing, this judgment on him. But then also, all Israel knows that Samuel has been marked out as a prophet by God. Who decided that Samuel would be a prophet. Did Eli decide that? Did Hannah decide that? Did Elkanah decide that? Did Samuel decide that he was going to be a prophet? Did his parents, did the man who has basically been raising him to this point decide it? No. The answer to all of the above is no. God decided. God decided that Samuel would be a prophet, and so Samuel is a prophet. It wasn't his idea, but now it's his responsibility. God has called him, And God is going to tell Samuel what to say. And also, if this is the initial pattern, you're going to say everything that God tells you to say 
if that's imprinted early on and that's indistinguishable from when God tells you a thing to say, you say it faithfully, you don't leave anything out, that's going to go a long ways to explain how Samuel engages for the rest of his life. For the rest of his time, being this prophet of God, that's what he's going to do. He's going to say exactly what God told him to say, to whom God said to say it, and these things will come to pass. But again, as I mentioned in our previous episode, Samuel is not, by any indication in the text, a Levite. Also, an interesting thing, going back to the very last verse of the previous chapter, chapter 2, it says, everyone who is in your house, left in your house, shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and shall say, please put me in one of the priest's places that I may eat a morsel of bread, which is to say, Part of the prophecy against Eli and his sons is that someone is going to be raised up who will be a faithful priest, who will do according to what is in God's heart and in God's mind. God will build him a sure house. He will go in and out before God's anointed forever. Everybody left in the line of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, will go to him and ask him for money, ask him for food. Right now, as it stands in chapter 2 and now in chapter 3, Samuel is dependent on Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, I'm sure, to some extent, but at least Eli, hopefully not Hophni and Phinehas, because they're bad guys. They probably have no interest, but also, too, it would be mutual. If I were in Samuel's shoes, I would not want to be dependent on them for anything. They're not good guys, to say the least. And yet part of the prophecy against Eli and Hophni and Phinehas is anyone left in your house will ask this faithful servant God is going to raise up for money and for food. Who is that faithful servant? Well, what we know is Samuel is going to be a faithful servant and God calls Samuel to be his prophet and all Israel knows it. All of Israel knows it and Eli knows it and Eli is resigned to his fate. This is a sobering, curious, odd picture. And oh, by the way, here's a boy in contrast to an old man. God is calling a boy to be a prophet, and God is raising up someone to say and to do and to call others to do and to say what is in God's heart and what is in God's mind. And if there's no indication that Samuel is a Levite, Well, let's just remember, let's remember the whole reason why the Levites were special in the first place is because God singled out the tribe of Levi. God singled out Aaron and his descendants. So God always has the option to single somebody else out. If he's not getting representation from the people he called to represent him, he can call somebody else and he often does. And we'll see that. We'll see that in the person of Saul, who's the first king over Israel, it's not an earlier figure who makes himself a king, who schemes and he plots and announces himself king and all that. No, no, it's the anointed we regard as the first king officially, legitimately in Israel. It's Saul. But then his being a legitimate king, that doesn't mean that he's a good king and it doesn't mean that he gets to keep the kingdom past the point where He's faithless and disobedient and just does whatever he wants. This is the biggest blow against the divine right of kings 
mindset, which was popular during the Middle Ages, which Samuel Rutherford, interestingly enough, that his first name was Samuel, Samuel Rutherford, Scots Presbyterian churchman, elder, wrote against in Lex Rex, the law and the king. The law is king, not that the king is the law. How we know that the king is not the law, whatever he says becomes the new right and wrong, the new true and false. How we know that is because God did things like taking the kingdom away from Saul when Saul did what was evil and disobedient and said the wrong thing and didn't say the right thing, did the wrong thing, didn't do the right thing that God had called for him to do as king. The kingdom was taken away from him and his descendants. His having even a worthy son who had good character in the person of Jonathan didn't change the fact that God took the kingdom away from Saul and that there was judgment on the house of Saul. But we'll get to that. We'll get to that soon enough. The person of Saul, the person of David, there's a lot to unpack. But what's important is that we not miss that the character of God is the same forever. God's character has not changed. He wasn't any less God or more God in the Old Testament. His power has not waxed or waned. His justice does not sleep. But in Christ, we have all that we need for life and godliness. And we also have a great deal of mercy. We have righteousness when we believe in Christ. We have Christ's righteousness imputed to us. But then we also have the opportunity to be the children of God. And if God can call a boy named Samuel who doesn't even know Yahweh, he doesn't even know the voice of Yahweh when God calls him, if God can do that and prefer someone who has no idea even who he's speaking to, he's ministering to Yahweh in the presence of Eli, but he doesn't know Yahweh, doesn't know the voice of Yahweh. If God can call Samuel in those kinds of circumstances, in these situations relative a corrupt priesthood in Israel, Don't give up hope in our circumstances that God also can get representation and raise up representation in his good timing. In fact, we should expect that he will. The only question is who and when and where and what will the catalyst be for God demonstrating his justice and yes, even his mercy on all who suffer under oppressive, corrupt men. It's a mercy to those people when justice is served to those who do the oppressing. God will not be mocked. Man reaps what he sows. In Eli's case, he's passive. He turns a blind eye. He says too little, too late to rebuke his sons. But then what does he do? What is done to put a stop to their abuses of office, their corruption? Not enough. Not enough and not soon enough. So he's resigned to his fate. But wouldn't it have been better instead of resignation, a kind of piety in saying, whatever God's going to do, he's going to do. Wouldn't it have been better if Eli had taken more seriously what God has called Eli to do? You say, God's going to do whatever seems best to him. Well, why don't you do whatever seems best to God for you to do? There's a double-mindedness to this. No course correction, no change, just carry on. And that's part of the reason for the judgment is there's a stubbornness to it. There's a stubbornness to the refusal to engage with his responsibility. And now time's up. Time is up at a certain point. And that's why when there is still time, you give warnings. And sometimes those warnings are for you. And sometimes those warnings are for the sake of the people who are suffering the bad consequences of 
your abuse or your neglect. If you are an abusive person or if you're a negligent person, sometimes the warning to the person who's abusing and neglecting you is for your sake, because now they know, right? Now they know, and that changes the tone and tenor of their engagement and maybe even just grants a little bit of immediate reprieve. But if they won't really truly repent, what is that? If Pharaoh being told by Moses, let my people go, thus says God, thus says Yahweh, let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. If Pharaoh says no, and here comes a plague to demonstrate God's power, God's overarching authority to command what he is commanding and for Pharaoh to obey. If Pharaoh hardens his heart, and then here comes another plague. Here comes Moses again saying, thus says Yahweh, let my people go. And Pharaoh starts to make like he's going to, and then he eases up a little bit and he kind of regrets it. And then he does let them go and they get a ways down the road, they get a ways out, and then he changes his mind. All of that brings him to the place of judgment by God. And it's his own character. It's his own orientation towards God, his own spiritual, mental, emotional orientation towards God, that he's opposed to God, and he's willful, and he's stubborn, and he's disobedient, and he's wicked. And God, in due time, draws that out to where what otherwise would be more subtle is a dramatic example for others and a mercy to others, not just because if they were being oppressed by Pharaoh, now they're not being oppressed by Pharaoh once he's judged, but also as a mercy towards those who would similarly be tempted to be stiff-necked, stubborn, disobedient, willful. You don't want to be like that guy. We need a cautionary example. In Pharaoh, we do so that there's a deterrence, even just in our own hearts, in our own minds. This is pedagogical when someone like Eli, Hophni, and Phineas is made an example of. But it's also pedagogical and somewhat humbling when God calls someone like Samuel. And it says at the beginning of chapter 3, the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision, which is, it seems to me, part of the reason why Samuel doesn't know Yahweh, and he doesn't know Yahweh's voice. The word of Yahweh had not yet been revealed to him, but it also says the word of Yahweh was rare in those days. And so it makes sense that Samuel is not acquainted in part because God wasn't speaking to a people who weren't listening. If they're not going to listen, God's not going to speak to them until it's time to pronounce judgment. You don't want to listen. You don't want to follow my commands. You don't want to trust in me. You don't want to be blessed by me. You want to do whatever you want to do okay, I'll leave you to your own devices. I'll be back. And part of the reason for this is because when God comes back into the equation and there is judgment, the illustration is unmistakable that the consequences are tied to the disobedience and the heart orientation of rebellion, stubbornness, selfishness, irreverence. There's no doubt. There's no question. It's not murky. It's not like, well, I don't know. Did they have it coming? seems a little harsh. No, if you knew... If you were there, if you were contemporaneous, if you were paying attention to the details, you knew that they had this coming, particularly in contrast to how a faithful servant relates to God. You see righteousness from pure motives. On the one hand, you see the fear of God, you see obedience, and then all of a sudden, it's all the more apparent, ah, 
what was happening before, even though it had an appearance of godliness, it denied the power thereof. It had the appearance of godliness, but it was going through the motions. It was checking boxes. It was religiosity, but it was not relationship with Yahweh. Remember that religion that God the Father finds pure and acceptable, James, brother of Jesus, says in the New Testament, religion that God the Father finds pure and acceptable is this, to attend to, take care of widows and orphans in their need, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Not to go through all of the rituals with all of the trappings to minister to Yahweh without knowing Yahweh. God would rather we know him and minister to him than just minister to him because somebody told us, okay, now do this. Okay, now do that. Now check this box. God wants a thoroughgoing genuineness and transformation of his people so that they are holy inside and out. Not like the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs, washing the outside of the cup. Meanwhile, inside are dead men's bones. Inside, every kind of corruption and nastiness. Wash the inside of the cup. Don't be a whitewashed tomb. Don't be a hypocrite. Don't play act at virtue. Don't virtue signal. God is not impressed with that. But what does please him? What pleases him is genuineness. And don't get a big head about if God does call to you, if God does speak to you, if God does lead and guide you, if God does forgive you, if he does redeem you, if he is getting representation in you, because he can use a boy in Samuel who doesn't even know him, doesn't even know what his voice sounds like. It's curious too. This is very, very curious. This is very poetic that Samuel keeps on thinking that Eli is speaking, but it's actually God. That's very mysterious. Samuel doesn't know the difference between Eli's voice and Yahweh's voice. And oh, by the way, this is part of the reason why God takes it so seriously that his priests treat with contempt the burnt offerings that people come from all Israel to offer to God in obedience. That these priests would treat with contempt those offerings is dangerous for the understanding of the people of Israel in relation to God. Samuel, who's there all the time, doesn't know the difference between Eli's voice and Yahweh's voice. And we have to know the difference between God's voice and the voice of those who minister before him. Those who are pastors or elders or professors or popular authors or musicians or other kinds of celebrities, those who are politicians who maybe make mention of God, they sprinkle in some God talk. Again, all of that can be checking of boxes, going through the motions, and it may not be God who's speaking. But then the flip side is, when God is speaking, we need, to know, we need to know, we need to not just blow it off. We need to not dismiss when God is speaking to us and say, ah, that's just so-and-so, right? A lot of atheists and a lot of agnostics and a lot of unchurched people do this, where they say, oh yeah, the Christians are such hypocrites. And it's like, uh, okay, can we get back to whether Christ is a hypocrite? Christ isn't a hypocrite. The object of your faith is not supposed to be Christians. You say, oh, the church is this and that and the other thing. And it's like, okay, fine. Okay, maybe it is. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But Christ is not those things. If you're saying negative things, if you're saying there's a lack of genuineness, there's a lot of vice that is excused and propped up because the show must go on. Christ is not those things. Christ is not accurately described by that. We need to know the difference between Yahweh's voice and the voice of someone who perhaps is of two minds or institutions that are of two minds. 
God is not double-minded. People, yes, even people who claim to speak for God, who claim to act on God's behalf, who maybe even, yes, are put in a position by God for a time, for a season, people absolutely can be double-minded and typically are. If you don't want to be double-minded, make sure you understand the difference between when God is speaking and when someone else is just giving their opinion. And maybe it's ho-hum, and maybe they're leaving things out, maybe they're adding to or subtracting from what God would say. The only way to know for sure is to go directly to God. And in Christ, we have the ability because he is our mediator. He is our intercessor. We can approach with confidence the throne of grace in Christ. But with the time we have this episode, I want to clear one of the open tabs out of my browser that has been hanging out for a few weeks now. And it has been bothering me, quite honestly. It's been bothering me that I haven't gotten to it yet. I've maybe alluded to it here and there just a little bit, but I want to talk more fully about it in this episode, particularly having just talked through some of this business with the context in which Samuel is recognized as a prophet. He's called of God and he's being raised up and everybody knows that Samuel is a prophet in Israel. When the word of Yahweh was rare in those days, here's this little boy who's going to be a prophet. Knowing Samuel's context and keep it in mind as we talk through this article from the March 2020 issue of The Atlantic by David Brooks, knowing Samuel's context and how God uses Samuel and everything else we've read through and talked through and discussed and considered and meditated on from Genesis chapter 1 to this point for Samuel chapter 3 in the Old Testament this year. Consider the article by David Brooks, The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. The Nuclear Family Was a Mistake. Now, that's a big statement. That's a big claim, just right even in the title. That is an eye-catching, attention-grabbing title. What's the subtitle? And I quote, The family structure we've held up as the cultural ideal for the past half century has been a catastrophe for many. It's time to figure out better ways to live together. All right, so let's just pause. Let's pause for a moment, and let's recognize a few things. One, as Christians in America— In the year 2023, our attitudes toward the family, our convictions about what is the ideal, what does a healthy family look like, what is the role of a father in the lives of his children, what's the role of a mother in the lives of her children, what's the role of a husband in relation to his wife, what's the role of a wife in relation to her husband, how should children relate to their parents, how should children relate to one another, how many children should you have, when should you get married, should you get married, all these questions Even before we've gotten into, what about divorce? What about remarriage after a divorce? Before we even get into the question of same-sex attraction and should gay couples be allowed to have civil unions? Should they be called married as Obergefell v. Hodges handed down? That chip has sailed in some people's minds. I wouldn't say that that's the final word on it in perpetuity. Not when last year we saw Roe v. Wade overturned. But put aside all of the controversy and the debate about what is permissible, what should be affirmed, what should be 
aimed for? What should we prescribe? What should we advise? What should we encourage? What should we insist on? What should we warn against? Put aside all of that for a moment and just appreciate that some of the attitudes and the assumptions that we have are, as a matter of fact, built on nothing so much as what we see other people doing. In fact, you might argue quite a lot of people, that's their premise. And even in the church, it's hard to tell sometimes when we're getting these ideas from the Bible and when we're getting these ideas from looking around at our country, looking at what is on TV, looking at what is on our smartphone screen, computer screen, the big screen. And if somebody thinks of themselves as more traditional, more conservative, what do they mean by that in relation to the family? Do they mean that they want to go back to how families were arranged and ordered in the 1990s? How about the 1970s? How about the 1950s? Right? Where's your reference point? Where do you go back to if this is us trying to restore a better, healthier, and previous prior model, paradigm for the family? Where are we going back to? How about pre-industrial revolution? Is that the goal? Let's go back to the 1400s and how families functioned then. Or what about early church history? Let's go back to the first, second, third century AD. What was typical then? What was normative then? How about New Testament? How about Old Testament? What's the goal? Is the goal to go back in time to some example that we find or is the point to figure out what would be most practically, most socially, most economically beneficial now, given where we find ourselves? Some mixture of all of those considerations, all of those questions is in the mix for everybody, even if they don't recognize it, even if they don't know that that's all of what they're factoring in. There are practical questions about right now today, what are the options available to you? And I know this because every time I tune into some little YouTube short or an Instagram video that Lauren, my wife, sends me, or every time I see a notification on Facebook and I check something out there, every time I read an essay or an article or I talk with some young person or I talk with somebody who's about my age or 10 years older about marriage, about young people getting married or not getting married or thinking about getting married or they've just gotten married and now they're expecting a child or they've just had a child and now they're trying to figure out how to raise that child. Every time I have a conversation with people, a few things come up. One is their family of origin. That's a frame of reference. It could be a good one, an example they want to live up to. It could be a bad one that they're trying to overcome. They're trying to grow beyond. It could be their grandparents. Hey, my grandparents had a really great marriage. My grandparents did a really great job. It could be their parents. My parents love each other. They're still married. I want my marriage to be like my parents' marriage. It could be, hey, my parents got divorced when I was very young, or I never knew my father. And I don't know, right? I know that I don't have the picture of this, what this looks like, that I wish I did, but I know this other couple, right? This family has been an inspiration to me. I see what they're doing, and it looks so happy and beautiful and picturesque and I'm going to ask them for advice. It could be, hey, 
my favorite preacher, my favorite pastor, my favorite Christian author wrote this, said this, preached that, shot this video, went on this program, made some remarks that really have stuck with me. That's what I want. Or it could be, where have all the men gone? Where have all the good men gone, young ladies? Where are all the good women? Where, where have all the upstanding, traditional-minded, God-fearing, Jesus-following young ladies? So there's always going to be a multitude of inputs. And then, for the Christian, there might be, well, here's what the Bible says. In recent years, I would say the most typical reference point I've heard Christians who are pastors, who are authors, who are thought leaders— commentators refer back to is in Genesis when God makes Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, you have one man, one woman, and that is what's held up as the ideal, the example. Now, a few things are missing from the equation, which we have to solve for X with regards to. They include, for instance, that Adam and Eve didn't have parents. (laughs) They didn't have you know, his mom and dad, her mom and dad, you know, her mom doesn't like him and his mom doesn't really approve of her parents. There was none of that. That was just a non-factor. And you don't get enough information to go on to give you practical advice, practical guidance with only going as far as Adam and Eve. But what will people say? They'll say, well, we know that gay marriage is wrong because it's a departure from God's original standard with Adam and Eve. And by extension, too, we know that polygamy is wrong because it departs from God's original plan, which was one man and one woman. We know that that's his original plan, and we know that, therefore, polygamy is wrong and it's a sin. We don't see any indication that Adam and Eve got divorced, and so we know that divorce is wrong, right? There's no indication that they broke up. They went their separate ways. They separated. So we know that separation is wrong. We know that divorce is wrong. There's no indication that Adam got remarried. There's no indication that he took additional wives. So we know that remarriage is wrong, or it's not God's plan. Therefore, it's not right. Well, but wait a second, though. You know, I'm there with anybody who would say, let's believe and affirm the first three chapters of Genesis as true, as inerrant, as infallible, as God-breathed, I'm with anybody who would say that the Bible is the inspired Word of God, and it gives us a true account, the true account of our origins. I'm with you. But all Scripture is breathed out by God, and so for the people who would say, we don't believe Genesis, we don't find it credible, the response we need to make is, no, no, this is very credible and it makes a lot of sense. And there's a lot of wisdom here, and there's a lot to go on. There's a lot that gets referred back to later on in the scriptures. You can't just read everything else later on in scripture and be embarrassed about Genesis 1 through 3, because every time it's referenced in an authoritative way for the reason something is going to be done later on, you're going to be confused. And then what? You just edit out those parts too? Uh, I hope not, but some people do. If we make the equal and opposite error, and we say all we need is Genesis 1 through 3, we're in trouble. And yet some people have made something like that error where they say, okay, Genesis 1 through 3, Adam and Eve, one man, one woman, 
That's the ideal. Well, wait a second, though. There's no indication in Genesis 1 through 3 or in the chapters that follow that you have a multi-generational house. So what do you do in the case where Adam does not leave a father and mother and cleave to his wife when he marries Eve? You know, that's talking about things to come. Say, for instance, when Adam and Eve have children. And oh, by the way, in case it's not obvious, the only people that Adam and Eve's children would have to marry would be brothers and sisters, maybe nieces and nephews, maybe cousins, where later on, God says, thou shalt not. He puts a stop to that. It's of a peace with his limiting the lifespan of mankind. God can impose a restriction later on that was not there presently in Genesis 1 through 3. He can also permit certain things that were not present in Genesis 1 through 3. Another thing that's not present in Genesis 1 through 3 is the eating of animals, or at least God hasn't blessed it. And part of the reason why we should believe God didn't bless it in Genesis 1 through 3 is because God only gives permission to eat the animals to Noah and his sons and their wives when they get off of the ark after the flood. Presumably, it was not permissible, and so God can permit certain things later on that initially were not permitted. And God can also prohibit certain things later on that initially were permissible. And we find that the common denominator here is when God says it's permissible, it's permissible. When God says it's prohibited, it's prohibited. But then some of this may be not commented on because it's a pragmatic question. And it is actually a pragmatic question that God is content or pleased to have decided on from a place of our having liberty and God having given us faculties to make a determination about it regarding. So then, what do we find out about the nuclear family in Genesis 1 through 3? Not a lot. We know that Adam and Eve had children, they had sons, they had daughters. They lived a long old time. Those sons and daughters married one another. That's the only way to read it that makes sense, taking Genesis as literally true, as true history. So then they get married and they spread out, but then they spread out and they clump up in cities. And there's no specific instruction for how a immediate family lives in proximity. There's no express, explicit requirement where God says, for this reason, a man should leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. What does that mean? What are the implications for when a man and woman get into middle age, they're in their 40s or 50s, and one or both of them have elderly parents who can't live by themselves anymore, and now they need caretaking? What are the implications? That a husband and wife should not bring parents into the household so that they can be taken care of in their old age? Is that the implication? By no means. So all of this is to say that to say Adam and Eve are the pattern for the nuclear family and say no more is inadequate. It's insufficient on its face because Adam and Eve, one, didn't have parents complicating as parents often can complicate the romance of a young man and a young woman. Not always. Hopefully they don't, but sometimes they do. Ask me how I know. When a husband and a wife in most cases throughout human history live in close proximity to one or both sets of parents, and those parents of a husband and wife grow old, the decision has to be made. Who is going to take care of mom and dad? Are they going to move in with us? Are we going to move in with them? Are we all going to live in one big house? 
That's where you get multi-generational families. That's where you get the extended family. And we do find biblical support for taking care of the extended family in the New Testament. For instance, when Paul writes about widows, who should take care of widows when they have extended family, particularly extended family professing Christian faith. Those who are widows, who are elderly, or at any age, they should be provided for, taken care of, taken in by their extended family. So we see that there is a role for the extended family, and that it is not just a man and his wife being self-indulgent, only thinking of each other, never being interrupted in their conversation or their time together. That's the ideal. If Adam and Eve are as far as we get in understanding and unpacking what the family should look like, how the family should operate, how husbands and wives should relate to each other. If they're as far as we get, then we're kind of flying blind when we come into a situation like that. We are. So coming back to David Brooks's article, even just the premise, if he would make the claim that the family structure we've held up as the cultural ideal for the past half century has been a catastrophe for many, we should hear him out. Now, just to say as much does not prove it, But we should hear him out because it might be that the ideal we've held up is arbitrary and it's a cultural construct. And the way we're going to test whether this is so is one, we'll hear his argument. Is it absurd on its face? Is it objectively, practically just total nonsense, actually inaccurate? And then more importantly, how does it hold up against the word of God? How does it hold up against scripture? So all that said, let's dive in and let's read some of the first couple of paragraphs here, and I'll give you some commentary as we go. He writes, The scene is one many of us have somewhere in our family history, dozens of people celebrating Thanksgiving or some other holiday around a makeshift stretch of family tables, siblings, cousins, aunts, uncles, great aunts. The grandparents are telling the old family stories for the 37th time. It was the most beautiful place you've ever seen in your life, says one, remembering his first day in America. There were lights everywhere. It was a celebration of light. I thought they were for me. The oldsters start squabbling about whose memory is better. It was cold that day, one says about some faraway memory. What are you talking about? It was May, late May, says another. The young children sit wide-eyed, absorbing family lore and trying to piece together the plot line of the generations. After the meal, there are piles of plates in the sink, squads of children conspiring mischievously in the basement, groups of young parents huddled in a hallway making plans, the old men nap on couches waiting for dessert. It's the extended family in all its tangled, loving, exhausting glory. This particular family is the one depicted in Barry Levinson's 1990 film Avalon, based on his own childhood in Baltimore. Five brothers came to America from Eastern Europe around the time of World War I and built a wallpaper business. For a while, they did everything together, like in the old country. But as the movie goes along, the extended family begins to split apart. Some members move to the suburbs for more privacy and space. One leaves for a job in a different state. The big blow-up comes over something that seems trivial but isn't. The eldest of the brothers arrives late to a Thanksgiving dinner to find that the family has begun the meal without him. You cut the turkey without me? He cries. Your own flesh and blood? You cut the turkey? The pace of life is speeding up. Convenience, privacy, and mobility are more important than family loyalty. The idea that they would eat before the brother arrived was a sign of disrespect, Levinson told me recently when I asked him about that scene. That was the real crack in the family. 
When you violate the protocol, the whole family structure begins to collapse. As the years go by in the movie, the extended family plays a smaller and smaller role. By the 1960s, there's no extended family at Thanksgiving. It's just a young father and mother and their son and daughter eating turkey off trays in front of the television. In the final scene, the main character is living alone in a nursing home, wondering what happened. In the end, you spend everything you've ever saved, sell everything you've ever owned, just to exist in a place like this. In my childhood, Levinson told me, you'd gather around the grandparents and they would tell the family stories. Now individuals sit around the TV watching other families' stories. The main theme of Avalon, he said, is the decentralization of the family. And that has continued even further today. Once families at least gathered around the television, now each person has their own screen. This is the story of our times, the story of the family, once a dense cluster of many siblings and extended kin fragmenting into ever smaller and more fragile forms. The initial result of that fragmentation, the nuclear family, didn't seem so bad. But then, because the nuclear family is so brittle, the fragmentation continued. In many sectors of society, nuclear families fragmented into single-parent families, single-parent families into chaotic families or no families. If you want to summarize the changes in family structure over the past century, the truest thing to say is this. We've made life freer for individuals and more unstable for families. We've made life better for adults, but worse for children. We've moved from big, interconnected, and extended families, which helped protect the most vulnerable people in society from the shocks of life, to smaller, detached nuclear families, a married couple and their children, which give the most privileged people in society room to maximize their talents and expand their options. The shift from bigger and interconnected extended families to smaller and detached nuclear families ultimately led to a familial system that liberates the rich and ravages the working class and the poor. This article is about that process and the devastation it has wrought and about how Americans are now groping to build new kinds of family and find better ways to live. Now, before I say anything about David Brooks's intro here, which was very well written, by the way, very interesting, very engaging. We're hooked now, okay? <laughs> let's go back to First Samuel, the first three chapters of First Samuel for a moment, and let's think about Samuel, this boy. Could you say that Samuel's family situation was a bit disjointed, a bit not ideal. I mean, whatever your ideal is, it's probably not where he comes from. It's probably not a circumstance in which his mother gave him up after she had weaned him to go and live with Eli, whose two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are reprobates, infamous throughout the whole nation for their corruption for being licentious, for being bullies, for treating God's sacrifices with contempt, for sleeping with women right outside of the tent of meeting. Samuel's mother, Hannah, gives her baby boy, who was an answer to prayer, over to Eli to be raised. But then before that, the prayer in the first place is coming from the place of a woman who is suffering from anxiety and depression, it looks to me. She's vexed. She doesn't even want to eat. She's so harassed by a rival wife because Samuel's mother is one of two wives of this man, Elkanah. That's where Samuel comes from. That's his home life. That's what he's growing up like. So how's that for a picture? He gets to see his mom once a year when the family goes to 
Shiloh, and his mom brings him a little robe that she made herself for her son, who she obviously still loves. That's where Samuel's coming from. And for that matter, too, Eli, Hophni, Phinehas, not an exemplary father-to-sons, sons-to-father relationship to model yours after. Not an aspirational model that you want to look up to at all. And yet, who is present in these situations? Who sees? Who hears? Who intervenes? God. God does. What gives stability to, purpose to, Samuel's trajectory in life? It's not his family of origin. It's not Eli. It's not that he's an Israelite, first and foremost, except that Israel is God's chosen people, and Samuel is God's chosen spokesperson. And so you have God able to equip and to call and to equip the one he's called a boy who doesn't exactly have the best examples to look up to for what it means to be a man. And yet, with God, all things are possible. Samuel can be an upstanding character and can do the right thing. He can say true things and he can do good things because God intervenes. What is woefully absent so many of our conversations about the ideal family? Even when we go back to Adam and Eve and we say, oh, God made Adam and Eve. Well, yeah, but God made Elkanah and Hannah and Peninnah. God made Eli and Hophni and Phinehas. And yes, God made Samuel. But then we should be more focused on the God who made all of these people and don't get distracted by their family situation as though the family situation is why God blessed them. Rather, the family situation being blessed is downstream of that relationship with God. That's why Paul says the man who doesn't provide for the needs of his family, especially the members of his own household, is worse than an unbeliever because it's hypocrisy. It's virtue signaling without the virtue when a man says he has that relationship with God, but it's not expressing itself in the way he relates to his family. It's not sufficient that Eli goes through the motions. And his problem with God is not only that he has a bad way of relating, a passive, hands-off approach to his sons who are being reprobates, but rather Eli's relationship to God is obviously not so good. And we find evidence of that by the way he doesn't engage his sons to bring them to account, to correct them, to stop them from doing the things that they're doing. And even in their young years, he's not training them up in the way that they should go, probably, because when they got older, what did they not depart from? Being corrupt, being arbitrary, going through the motions, but all the while scraping the cream off the top for themselves in a way that God had not said was acceptable or permissible. I dare say, in our context, why the nuclear family and the extended family have broken down in the West, and in the U.S. particularly, specifically, is because that relationship with God between a man and God is not right. And then downstream of that relationship with God not being right, we find that the family splinters and breaks up and fragments and flies apart. And yes, it's great. It's romantic that grandparents maybe used to gather all the grandchildren around to tell them stories about where the family comes from, how they came to America, 
But what about the days when grandparents sat their grandchildren down to tell them about God, to read the Bible to them, to quote scripture to them, to give them godly counsel, to give them godly instruction? I don't find that in David Brooks's article. And the loss is not just that it's not mentioned, it's that it wouldn't even be thought a thing to consider or to look at. Oh, you cut the turkey without me. Well, wait a second, though. (laughs) We planned out our ideal family engagements, our ideal family orientation without God. The greater disrespect here is we do all these things without even considering God's purposes. That's when it really breaks apart, humanly speaking. That's what has put us on this bad path of loneliness. Lonely people living by themselves in perpetuity with surrogate families. Why? Because marriage was not a priority based on what God had said. Having children was not a priority. Raising what children were had in the way that they should go was not a priority. Providing for family in a way that keeps extended families together was not a priority. When these are not priorities for us because God said so, well then, what we get is what we've gotten. But let's continue on. Back to David Brooks. Part one, the era of extended clans. He writes, through the early parts of American history, most people lived in what by today's standards were big, sprawling households. In 1800, three quarters of American workers were farmers. Most of the other quarter worked in small family businesses like dry goods stores. People needed a lot of labor to run these enterprises. It was not uncommon for married couples to have seven or eight children. In addition, there might be stray aunts, uncles, cousins, as well as unrelated servants, apprentices, and farmhands on some southern farms. Of course, enslaved African-Americans were also an integral part of production and work life. Stephen Ruggles, a professor of history and population studies at the University of Minnesota, calls these corporate families social units organized around a family business. According to Ruggles, in 1800, 90% of American families were corporate families. Until 1850, roughly three-quarters of Americans older than 65 lived with their kids and grandkids. Nuclear families existed, but they were surrounded by extended or corporate families. Extended families have two great strengths. The first is resilience. An extended family is one or more families in a supporting web. Your spouse and children come first, but there are also cousins, in-laws, grandparents, a complex web of relationships among, say, 7, 10, or 20 people. If a mother dies, siblings, aunts, uncles, and grandparents are there to step in. If a relationship between a father and a child ruptures, others can fill the breach. Extended families have more people to share the unexpected burdens when a kid gets sick in the middle of the day and when an adult unexpectedly loses a job. A detached nuclear family, by contrast, is an intense set of relationships among, say, four people. If one relationship breaks, there are no shock absorbers. In a nuclear family, the end of the marriage means the end of the family as it was previously understood. Now, let's just pause right there and let me speak from my own experience. And some will say I'm oversharing, but some of us have to talk about these things or else nobody's going to be able to make any sense of it. That's just all there is for it. That's part of the reason why we get the stories that we do in the Bible. By the way, God's not embarrassed for us to talk about these things. Otherwise, he wouldn't have put the stories of dysfunctional families in the Bible that he does. So there you go. My mother was from Milton, Florida. My father was from Glendive, Montana. I was born in Glendive, Montana in 1986. My dad, nine years older than my mom, 
came from a large extended family in eastern Montana that for generations had farmed, in particular, in the Bloomfield area. Homesteaded way back when, our ancestors, multiple generations ago, have been in eastern Montana for quite some time. And I still have an uncle who farms in that area. I have a cousin who lives in that area and owns a hydrovac business. But I was born in 1986 to a mom from Milton, Florida, who was out of place in the extended family. And there was stress. There was conflict. The conflict was primarily, initially, between my mother and my aunts, that is, especially my dad's five sisters, but then also the wives of my dad's brothers. He has three younger brothers, one older sister, four younger sisters. My aunts on that side did not get along with my mom, and that led to conflict between my mom and my dad. My grandmother, God rest her soul, didn't seem to especially get along with my mother, and there were big family table get-together meals on a regular basis for a few years, and there was a general disapproval of my mother. There was something of a conflict of visions of what the family should operate like. Well, part of the reason for that was my mother grew up in a home where there wasn't a lot of connection with the extended family on her side. My mom had two older siblings, an older brother, an older sister. Their mother was a public school teacher. Their father was permanently disabled after World War II. He was in and out of VA hospitals. My mother did not grow up with a big, bustling, noisy, and yes, sometimes ornery extended family the way that my dad did. So for my dad, it was old hat. It was, yeah, well, we farm together. We go to church together. We get together for the holidays. We get together just to hang out, to break bread, to have meals. Yeah, we don't always get along, but we get through it, right? You just learn to ignore the picking and the poking and the prodding and the passive aggressiveness from some people because that's just how they are. My mom was very sensitive to this. She took very, very poorly the picking and the criticism. And ultimately, that put my parents on a trajectory by my mom's insistence that involved complete alienation from the extended family on my dad's side. By and large, for the most part, alienation from family down in Florida on her side. But then that was conflict that my mom had with her sister, conflict that my mom had with her brother, conflict that my mom had on and off over the years with her mother. And so I grew up in a nuclear family and we moved around, but by and large, wherever we moved, our ties, if we had ties to the extended family on my mom's side or my dad's side, they were tenuous at best. And without making this story too long, when we moved to Ohio, when I was about 10 years old, it was messy and we started over and all we had really to go on were friends of the family but more so friends of my mother's from when she went to Cedarville University in her early 20s. Friends of hers, particularly families that she had taught piano to their children back when she was in college. My mother is an excellent pianist. She's a very good piano teacher. She was well-loved by those families, and they became our support network. They became a kind of surrogate extended family, but they were all on her side. If there was ever any kind of a disagreement, conflict, what have you. 
if there were marital issues between my mom and my dad, which there definitely were, all of the support was on her side. And quite frankly, she wanted to keep it that way. She liked it that way. And in due time, I'll just say my mother divorced my father. But what I distinctly recall as being the reason, there were reasons, but the reason, the final straw was that when she kicked him out of the house, he went back home to Montana and he got reconnected with his extended family and she would not forgive him for that. And so she filed divorce papers. She divorced him ultimately because he was going to reconnect, was in the process of reconnecting with his extended family. My, by extension, extended family. What David Brooks is writing here about the end of a marriage in a nuclear family, if it's just a nuclear family and there's no extended family, the end of a marriage, meaning the end of the family as it was previously understood, I know that from personal experience. A lot of my peers in my generation and after, a lot of millennials, a lot of Gen Z know this from personal experience. This is not an abstract idea. This is not a thought exercise. This is our experience. A lot of our parents got divorced when we were young and we grew up bouncing back and forth between mom and dad. And in the really bad situations, in the really bad cases, mom and dad used us as pawns to get back at each other. In the really bad cases, anytime we resembled one or the other parent, it triggered the opposite because they were bitter and they were angry towards our mother, if it was the father or our father, if it was the mother. In my case, it was my mother who would be triggered anytime I reminded her of my father. And that's before we even get into my getting plugged back into my extended family. Round about the time my mother kicked me out, just like my father before me, she kicked me out at about 17. And then in due time, when my brother hit that age, she kicked my brother out. And before we knew it, all of us were living together and alienated from my mother. And my mother, for her part, proceeded to look abroad for someone else. She got remarried not once but twice to men from Egypt. One who was unfaithful after he moved to the United States to live with her. So she divorced him. And then the other who moved back to Egypt. But setting that aside, I got plugged back in to my extended family. That's part of the reason I was able to get into the oil and gas industry in the first place is relying on extended family connections and support and encouragement and advice in Eastern Montana. And it was for that reason that even a couple of attempts at getting reconnected with my mother, having a relationship with my mother, ended up falling apart in succession. I got reconnected with my extended family. I wanted to get to know my grandparents, my aunts, my uncles, my cousins. I invited all of the above to Lauren's in my wedding when we got married. And so my mom refused to come. Speaking of, she said, oh, you must not want me to come to your wedding. You don't want me there. And I know that because you invited them. My own mother did not come to my wedding and has missed most of the lives of my children as a result of bitterness that just passes on down, right? Bitterness towards my father, turning into bitterness towards me, attempts now and then to pretend that nothing happened, everything's fine. But then anytime she attempts that to just sweep it all under the rug and pretend everything's fine, 
I say, well, we should probably talk about some of what's gone wrong and what happened and work through some of these things to figure out, okay, is this going to just end up in the same place? Because I, I just can't handle that, right? I can't do that with you. It's not healthy for my wife and my children. And I don't want to put them into a situation where that's being done to them. They're being related to in the angry, bitter, abusive way. You're related to me. Oh, well, now, okay. You can't say that, right? You can't say that your mother was bitter and abusive towards you, negligent and abusive. You can't say that because that's not honoring your father and your mother and the Lord for this is right, right? So what do you do, right? It's a lose-lose. On the flip side, getting reconnected with the extended family was a very, very curious thing. You know, the nuclear family ending a marriage, either the husband divorces the wife, the wife divorces the husband, either way, the end of that marriage means the end of the family as you know it, when you're a child growing up in that, or if you're one or the other of the two married people. And so it's interesting to me that where we turned, where I in particular turned, after being cast out, being exiled after a fashion, where I turned was the extended family on my dad's side. And I maintained a relationship with my grandmother on my mom's side up until she passed away. Because you know what? Y'all are the only family I've got other than my own household, other than my wife and my children. But David Brooks continues. The second great strength of extended families is their socializing force. Multiple adults teach children right from wrong, how to behave toward others, how to be kind. Over the course of the 18th and 19th centuries, industrialization and cultural change began to threaten traditional ways of life. Many people in Britain and the United States doubled down on the extended family in order to create a moral haven in a heartless world. According to Ruggles, The prevalence of extended families living together roughly doubled from 1750 to 1900, and this way of life was more common than at any time before or since. During the Victorian era, the idea of hearth and home became a cultural ideal. The home is a sacred place, a vestal temple, a temple of the hearth watched over by the household gods before whose faces none may come but those whom they can receive with love, the great Victorian social critic John Ruskin wrote. This shift was led by the upper middle class, which was coming to see the family less as an economic unit and more as an emotional and moral unit, a rectory for the formation of hearts and souls. But while extended families have strengths, they can also be exhausting and stifling. They allow little privacy. You're forced to be in daily intimate contact with people you didn't choose. There's more stability, but less mobility. Family bonds are thicker, but individual choice is diminished. You have less space to make your own way in life. In the Victorian era, families were patriarchal, favoring men in general and firstborn sons in particular. As factories opened in the big U.S. cities in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, young men and women left their extended families to chase the American dream. These young people married as soon as they could. A young man on a farm might wait until 26 to get married. In the lonely city, men married at 22 or 23. From 1890 to 1960, the average age of first marriage dropped by 3.6 years for men and 2.2 years for women. The families they started were nuclear families. The decline of multi-generational cohabiting families exactly mirrors the decline in farm employment. Children were no longer raised to assume economic roles. They were raised so that in adolescence, they could fly from the nest, become independent, and seek partners of their own. 
They were raised not for embeddedness, but for autonomy. By the 1920s, the nuclear family with a male breadwinner had replaced the corporate family as the dominant family form. By 1960, 77.5% of all children were living with their two parents who were married and apart from their extended family. For a time, it all seemed to work. From 1950 to 1965, divorce rates dropped. Fertility rates rose. And the American nuclear family seemed to be in wonderful shape. And most people seemed prosperous and happy. In these years, a kind of cult formed around this type of family, what McCall's, the leading women's magazine of the day, called togetherness. Healthy people lived in two-parent families. In a 1957 survey, more than half of the respondents said that unmarried people were sick, immoral, or neurotic. During this period, a certain family ideal became engraved in our minds, a married couple with 2.5 kids. When we think of the American family, many of us still revert to this ideal. When we have debates about how to strengthen the family, we are thinking of the two-parent nuclear family with one or two kids, probably living in some detached family home on some suburban street. We take it as the norm, even though this wasn't the way most humans lived during the tens of thousands of years before 1950, and it isn't the way most humans have lived during the 55 years since 1965. Today, only a minority of American households are traditional two-parent nuclear families, and only one-third of American individuals live in this kind of family. That 1950 to 1965 window was not normal. It was a freakish historical moment when all of society conspired wittingly and not to obscure the essential fragility of the nuclear family. So let's just pause again. Let's pause again and reflect on what's being said here. What's being conveyed is big. What Brooks claims is that the nuclear family was a flash in the pan that was never going to have the resilience to endure in the way that people assumed it would. That's the claim. And what I would ask you to consider is in relation to the biblical text, one, what is God's vision? What is God's command? What is his blessing? What does he tell us is good for us to aspire to and to embrace what does he bless and at the same time, not instead of, but in contrast to that, what do we typically find in the examples that are given, in the descriptions that we have of various family dynamics? If you stop in Genesis 1 to 3, you get something like a nuclear family, but then Cain murders Abel. Is that happily ever after? If that's not a break in an extended family, I don't know what is. You think you had a nasty argument last holiday season and uncle so-and-so said the kinds of things he always says and everybody got upset and offended and now I'm not sure if we're going to get together this Thanksgiving like we did last Thanksgiving. How about you try on, hey, last Thanksgiving, one of my uncles murdered another one of my uncles out in the field back behind the house and then lied and said, oh, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Yeah. Probably you're not going to get together for meals as a family moving forward like you used to after that one. That's probably going to be the end of reunions as you know it. You guys are all probably going to go in different directions to the far corners. It's going to be hard to come back from that one. And there's no indication that they did. Sin enters the world and immediately it damages the relationship family members have to one another. People in general, yes, but family members. We think of a relationship of brothers being the sacred thing, but brothers can be offended and intractable in their being offended. And a tremendous amount of bitterness can 
come out of conflict between brothers. A tremendous amount of bitterness can come out of conflict between parents and children. If there's no mechanism for restoring the relationship, for resolving conflict, for knowing when one party has sinned against another, that they would repent, what is the known sin which has been committed by one against another, that they should repent of it. When there's no mechanism for repentance and restoration, you will not be able to sustain either the nuclear family or the extended family. You just won't. But that restoration, that grace, that mercy, that mechanism has to come from God. It has to be Jesus. It has to be Christ. For that matter, knowing what is sin that you would repent of, you would admit wrongdoing in, has to come from God. One of the most painful realizations coming from a broken home, coming from a broken family myself, one of the most painful realizations is sometimes you can feel tremendously damaged, harmed, hurt, wounded by a member of your family, and you can tell them. And if there's not an objective measure that, hey, listen, it is black and white, no questions, you wronged me. See, this is what you were supposed to do, and you didn't do it, and you've sinned against me, and repent and confess your sins and make it right. If you don't have it in black and white, and even if you do have it in black and white, if the other person cares only about themselves, if they're selfish, self-absorbed, self-seeking, proud, stiff-necked, there's nowhere to go with it except, and this is where you get dysfunctional family dynamics, except to pretend it never happened. Downplay it, come up with some clever myth about it, say it's no big deal. And some people's idea of forgiveness is that because they want to keep the nuclear family together, they want to keep the extended family together, but they don't actually do things in a biblical way when it comes to resolving conflict, confronting sin. That's where abuse happens in families, and that's where people who live by themselves and they're lonely, autonomous individuals, self-actualizing, that's where they will fall back on and say, ah, see, family I associate with abuse and neglect, so I don't want a family. One, because I, I, don't, I don't want to be abused. I don't want to be neglected. For another thing, I also don't want to be the one at fault. I don't want it to be my fault if I don't know how to have a healthy family. You know, So young people who grew up in broken homes where their parents got divorced, and it was ugly, it was nasty, it was horrible, it was painful for everybody. They say, well, I don't want to get married because I don't know how to have a healthy marriage, and I don't want what I saw my parents get in a divorce. Or if there was abuse from parent to child, or if there was neglect from parent to child, they say, I don't want to have children. I have no idea how to raise a child. I have no idea. But then here again, what David Brooks is saying, there's a lot of truth to it with regards to the role that the extended family used to play in stabilizing. When a young person doesn't know how to change a diaper or how to burp a baby or how to resolve conflict with their spouse, but there are older people in the family that they can go to or who can come to them and say, hey, listen, can I show you something? Hey, what's going on with this? Hey, I, I've got some advice for you. Here's what you should do. You know, there's an economic benefit if, hey, we're short on the rent this month because something happened and payroll didn't run as expected with my employer. Can you help spot us a few hundred dollars? Thank you. I appreciate it. I'll pay you back. You know, there's an economic stabilization that can happen and that's good. That's appropriate. That's biblical, actually, but there's also a practical, functional, social, emotional, and ideally, if it's going to be sustainable, there's a spiritual stabilization that happens in an extended family 
dedicated to loving the Lord. Continuing on, back to David Brooks's article here. As he says, For one thing, most women were relegated to the home. Many corporations well into the mid-20th century barred married women from employment. Companies would hire single women, but if those women got married, they would have to quit. Demeaning and disempowering treatment of women was rampant. Women spent enormous numbers of hours trapped inside the home under the headship of their husband, raising children. Now let's just stop there for a second, okay? Let's stop David Brooks. Didn't get very far. I was trying to turn back to his article, but then wait a second. Wait, wait, wait a second. Are you baking the problem into your assessment of the problem? If so, how are you going to come up with a solution? Or is this just, hey, I collect a check, writing very skillfully a postmortem on family life in America. Understand what David Brooks is communicating here about married women being barred from employment in corporations, you have to understand that part of the reason for that is because there was a recognized risk that a married woman working for a corporation may get seduced by her boss or some other male coworker. And now that's adultery. And now that's a broken family. That's a broken home. Attachment is going to form based on proximity, just like attachment in previous centuries would have formed and been solidified and cemented between a husband and wife because they're farming together, they're living and working together on the farm or in a small business in the city. They operate out of their own home, a shop perhaps. Those attachments, those bonds, emotional, social, psychological form and help to cement their romance, help to keep their family together, their marriage together. You send a married woman off to a factory or to an office building, and she's working with men who are not her husband all day long. With whom does she form those emotional bonds? With whom does she develop intimacy of an emotional kind, which can very easily turn into a physical kind of intimacy where she's going to have an affair? She's going to be an adulteress. David Brooks, just like it's obvious, like, of course, this is demeaning and disempowering treatment of women. And it was rampant. He misses the other side of the equation, which was, no, wait a second. That was to protect married men and married women from the temptation to break their marriage vows and be unfaithful. That's what that was. A single woman, she's working there. Maybe she develops feelings for a boss or for a coworker. And you know what? If that happens and he's available, they could just get married and then she could stay home. But is it her being trapped inside the home under the headship of her husband raising children? Is that the best way to describe a wife and mother raising children and submitting to her own husband? What's being disputed here is the original plan of God. Now, again, like I said before, you have to separate out what does God tell us is the way for the family to function and operate right? There's the ideal. That's what we're aiming for. That's what we should aspire to. Otherwise, what are we doing, right? We're just wasting our time. And who are we kidding to read our Bibles, go to church, talk about the Christian family. If we don't pay any attention to his commands, then the love of the father is not in us. We can't say that we love Jesus and totally ignore his commands and ignore scripture. Can't do that. It's not how it works. There's that, what God commands, what he prescribes, what he says he blesses, what he calls us to, what he says his purposes are for the family, for marriage, for parenting, etc. 
And then there are all the dysfunctional examples. Now, just like you can have dysfunctional example after example presented and described in the biblical text, but that doesn't mean that they're proscribed or they're prescribed. So also you can have dysfunctional example after example in contemporary American culture or Western history, world history, and it doesn't in any way invalidate the purposes and the promises and the commands of God. Just like those examples being held up don't suddenly become the command, oh yeah, just do whatever everybody else is doing. Well, so also they don't invalidate or neutralize what God has told us is going to be blessed, what's going to go well. And yet, again, this is why our extended families don't work. Now, I'll scroll on down here for the sake of time. There is more to this article that I'm going to read for you or talk through, unpack in this episode. There's a section with a video embedded here, how the nuclear family broke down. There's a section here titled Disintegration. Here's a quote for you. We're likely living through the most rapid change in family structure in human history. The causes are economic, cultural, and institutional all at once. Continuing to scroll on down. Here's another quote. The period when the nuclear family flourished was not normal. It was a freakish historical moment when all of society conspired to obscure its essential fragility. It's a quote from up above. Part two, redefining kinship from nuclear families to forged families. If I continue scrolling on down, we get to the very conclusion. The very last few paragraphs here, three, if you can call the third one sentence a paragraph, we'll go ahead and give them that. The last three paragraphs of David Brooks's article in The Atlantic from 2020, he writes, the two-parent family, meanwhile, is not about to go extinct for many people, especially those with financial and social resources. It is a great way to live and raise children, but a new and more communal ethos is emerging, one that is consistent with 21st century reality and 21st century values. When we discuss the problems confronting the country, we don't talk about family enough. It feels too judgmental, too uncomfortable, maybe even too religious. Aha, there we go. There we go, right? Maybe even too religious, like you were uncomfortable even saying that it feels too religious because that was what was holding families together before. Say the quiet part out loud, David Brooks. But the blunt fact is that the nuclear family has been crumbling in slow motion for decades, and many of our other problems with education, mental health, addiction, the quality of the labor force stem from that crumbling. We've left behind the nuclear family paradigm of 1955. For most people, it's not coming back. Americans are hungering to live in extended and forged families in ways that are new and ancient at the same time. This is a significant opportunity, a chance to thicken and broaden family relationships, a chance to allow more adults and children to live and grow under the loving gaze of a dozen pairs of eyes and be caught when they fall by a dozen pairs of arms. For decades, we have been eating at smaller and smaller tables with fewer and fewer kin. It's time to find ways to bring back the big tables. And I quote, now, a couple of comments, a few, if you'll permit me. My wife and I have a big table. We bought it not long after moving to Montana in 2012, in part because I had the economic wherewithal to be able to buy that table for us, but it seats all of our children. For a while, it was a struggle because we had chairs and we couldn't fully extend the table based on where our dining room was. And the chairs wouldn't all fit when you tried to push the table together to collapse it to the right size to fit into the dining room. And so can I just point out that if you want to have bigger and bigger tables, we're going to have to 
bring back bigger and bigger dining rooms, but that's going to mean we're going to need the capacity to overall <laughs> overhaul houses that don't accommodate big tables or to build new houses that have large dining rooms, large dining spaces. You can't fit a big table in a small room. What we did was we got rid of most of the chairs, except for the ones on the very ends and a couple besides, and then we bought benches. And particularly with a broad range of children, and we have eight and a ninth is due in November, you can fit lots of little bottoms on a bench much more easily than big adult-sized chairs that don't distinguish between whether that's a little bottom or a big bottom. We have a big table. We have a big table because we have a lot of kids. And we're doing a thing with my wife staying home and homeschooling our kids and us having all these kids. We're doing a thing which makes us stick out quite a lot. We are very unusual. And money is very tight. And part of the reason that money is very tight is because taxes and regulation have strangled the American economy, have strangled the economic output, which a breadwinner like myself is able to generate for my time, for my labor, for my attention. I mean, bear in mind, I have an associate's degree in business administration, and I'm making $60 an hour as a controls programmer. I have worked, I've applied myself, I've gotten the training, I have changed companies when I needed to change companies in order to move up. I've moved my family when I needed to move my family to follow where the opportunity was going, where it was, when it ceased to be where I was. Let's move to someplace where it is now. I've done that. At a certain point, it's not a factor of an individual man, an individual husband and father, an individual married couple and household managing their household well, managing their finances well, applying themselves, working hard enough, being diligent enough. At a certain point, you have to say, this game is rigged to favor and to glean votes from the unwed and the childless predominantly. This game is rigged from a taxes standpoint and from a regulation standpoint to favor people who predominantly live in big houses all by themselves, owning multiple cars, and they don't have anybody else to think about. And if inflation goes up and some of the things that they enjoy pampering themselves with get more and more expensive, it's fine. They could just cut those extra things out. They'll buy a cheaper version. Now They just won't take that vacation that they were saving up for. They'll put that money into fixing up the vehicle or whatever. They'll do something closer to home. They'll go see a few concerts this summer instead. The system is rigged to take <laughs> opportunity and the productive result, the economic benefit away from breadwinners like myself and give to those who have given up on the extended family and they've given up on the nuclear family and they've given up on work and earning. Therefore, if you want to bring back big tables, you have to not just take a look at the size of the house and can we afford to get a big table? Can we afford to get that big house? You have to look at why is money so tight? Why is economic opportunity and the economic output, the benefit derived from working hard, going in the wrong direction? It's really difficult to talk a lot of young people into getting married young, younger than 30, having a whole mess of kids, the wife staying home and educating those children at home, where they will get a better education, by the way. And riddle me this, how is it that 
public school teachers are everybody's heroes or they're supposed to be everybody's heroes. And yet a homeschooling mom who stays home and homeschools her kid is some oppressed woman, right? Missing out on her potential. If she were in a public school teaching everybody else's kids, she'd be your hero and she doesn't make enough. Nobody pays my wife anything to homeschool our kids. I just go and I work and I earn and I do my best to provide by God's grace for my wife and our children. Change the tax structure so that homeschooling families are not paying into a system that delivers a bad education for everybody else's kids, all the while we're trying to do the level best with our kids. And you'll see more young families with bigger tables. And you'll see if the government stops being the social safety net, which it can't feasibly do, all of the things that it has promised to do for decades indefinitely, at a certain point, you totally, you totally devalue your currency and the whole economic system collapses because the money's not worth anything, relative goods and services available in the economy. Retract the safety net that is the government of the United States. And what you will find is that the churches have more wherewithal, extended families have more wherewithal to resume their rightful place in the lives of individuals. What's more, they'll be in a ideal spot to be able to not just enable bad behavior that results in dependence, as is so often the case, not always, but too often the case, they'll also be there to give advice and correction and instruction and more than just financial and material support, also emotional, mental, spiritual support, where those are factors in why this member of the extended family is not doing so great, is not making ends meet right now. If you think extended families can be abusive, so also government programs still involve people who can be abusive. They can abuse that power that they have over others, and the strings attached can be as bad or worse and even more vindictive and more cruel and more tyrannical. David Brooks says it's time to find ways to bring back the big tables. The way to do that is to reverse engineer what makes it possible to have an extended family in the first place. There has to be an economic incentive to sticking with the extended family, staying close by. There also has to be a mechanism for resolving conflict, which is to say you have to know when somebody has been too easily offended and when somebody has actually given a legitimate offense. And by legitimate, I mean, no, they need to apologize. They need to repent of that. They need to ask forgiveness. They have sinned. Were you being rude or was he being too easily offended? Either way, somebody needs forgiveness from God first. And then somebody else needs to hear from God a command to forgive. There needs to be a change of behavior, a change of attitude, a change of the way that we relate. But that only happens if you stop being so embarrassed about what God said would be blessed. You say, oh yeah, we have no idea, right? We have no idea how to do this thing. How about you look at what God told us to do and work from there? What what God wants, and you'll have healthier families. You'll have the means to have healthier families. But as long as we have social justice and the welfare state and people winking at corruption and being completely subjective about every sort of morality, every category of moral restraint, moral instruction, you don't mean it. If you want a big table in your old age, after you've passed up every instance, every example, every opportunity, every command, every principle, every promise 
every characteristic of a holy and righteous God who gave wisdom. You just blew it off, America. Then you didn't actually want those big tables for the right reasons, or you didn't really truly want them except to derive a benefit. Now, you can derive that benefit, but you have to seek first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness, and then all these other things will be given unto you. But if you want those things first, and you'll take them however you can get them, don't be surprised when you find that's exactly how we got to where we're at right now in the first place. That's exactly how it happens. The nuclear family is not necessarily a mistake because, oh, by the way, going back to Adam and Eve, initially, that's what it has to be. You have to start somewhere. Where my wife and I are starting is with our next generation. We want to train up our own children in the way that they should go. Sometimes it's difficult to know how we're supposed to relate to our extended family on both sides, but especially on my side. Should we make an effort? How much of an effort should we make? How much should we insulate our children from some of these influences that actually in due time would lead to the complete destruction of the very thing we want to pass down to future generations? We want our children to get along and not be petty with each other or when they all grow up and get married, God willing, we don't want them to be petty with each other's spouses. Some girl marries into the family. It needs to not be everybody pick at her until she gets frustrated and leaves. But then also too, in the run-up, it needs to be, hey, listen, we're all noticing, we're all observing the kind of girl that you're interested in or that gal over there, she's got good character or she doesn't have such good character. She relates to some of these situations in a really ugly way or it's just, ah, I'm just not so sure about this thing that I'm seeing. We want to weigh in in a way that is protective while also gracious. And at the same time, we have to recognize our own sin and take it to God and ask God to please give us understanding. Have mercy on us and help us to want to genuinely extend mercy and love, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. That is also actually how you have big tables again. So that's our goal. And by God's grace, we're working towards it. It may lead to some very interesting situations, some very interesting questions at times. Wow, don't you know how that happens? Are they all yours? All by the same man, my wife gets asked. Yes, by the same man. Yep, we've been married for going on 17 years, just about. Wow, that's amazing. Increasingly, we're starting to hear, good for you, more and more. And maybe some of that is there are other people who are also wanting to bring back those big tables because it's a lonely thing. It's a lonely thing to have, on average, 25, 2,600 square foot houses with less than two and a half people living in them. Broken homes, low fertility. Those features don't come out of nowhere and they don't get fixed by random chance. You can pray for us as we endeavor to not be a bad example, to be a good example, but ultimately you can pray for us as we seek to believe and live out what it is that God has given us in the way of instructions on these things. Hopefully you will also aspire to that and we can encourage each other. I think that'd be pretty great. If we will, if we would do that, it'll go well. It won't be easy, but it'll go well. But speaking of going well, I got to run. That's all the time I've got for this episode. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. 
For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out the Show.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.